I always feel just a little bit funny giving a closing talk when I've given an opening talk for the retreat because I get up here and I have this moment of almost pure delusion <laughs> and I think, can't be ending, can it? <laughs> Didn't it just begin? Wasn't I just up here giving an opening talk? How strange. And someone pointed out that those of you who are here for this um, retreat have experienced three feet of snow and 67-degree weather. So we've had lots of change uh, every day. So I want to talk tonight about <clears throat> some different elements that are involved in taking up practice and bringing it home and making it real. Many of you I know have heard us tell the story about our actual discovery of this piece of property when uh, Joseph and Jack Cornfield and I and some friends came back from Asia and began teaching. Uh, It was 1974, and we spent a couple of years pretty much just sort of wandering around when somebody would write us a letter and say, I can get together some friends and a cook. Will you come teach a retreat? We'd respond. And we'd go off and do that, and then at the end of that retreat, we really didn't know if there'd ever be another one until we got the next letter. And we lived like this for a bit when somebody said to us, well, maybe you should start a center. It would be a kind of sacred site in this country. It would be a repository for the energy that gets generated as people come together to practice, and it would need to, to then dissipate. So... We said, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. To the eternal regret of some people, most of the interest was on the East Coast. Nowadays, people say, you could have had anywhere. You know, you could have had Hawaii. You could have had Southern California. But no, you had to choose New England. So we looked up and down the East Coast um, with these people. And... um, Finally, it was suggested that we come to look at this property, which was, you know, as I'm sure we've mentioned, owned by the Catholic Church. The Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament ran the order here. It was their novitiate. And we came in December of 1975, and we were quite torn about what to do. On the one hand, it seemed perfect for a retreat center. You know, it's so placid, it's so quiet. It's pretty. And on the other hand, it seemed really big and kind of overwhelming. Like here we'd been leading this sort of haphazard life, just responding to these invitations without having any sense of how many people would really be interested in this form of practice over time. And in our uh, state of not knowing, we decided just to go to lunch in downtown Barrie. Those of you who passed through it, on your way here know that it's a very classic New England town with a a town green just in the center of it. In those days, there was a monument in the town green which had engraved upon it the Barrytown motto, which is tranquil and alert. So we looked at that and we said, okay, there's an omen. Now, any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert should have a meditation center in it. (laughs) And so we did it. 
And to this day, I find that quite amusing and enjoyable. You know, if you see one of the two police cars, sometimes you'll see that they have tranquil and alert um, on the door, and these friends of mine got married here, uh, and tranquil and alert is stamped on their wedding certificate, which I thought was a pretty good blessing for marriage. So that's the Barrytown motto. Now, this building was built in many parts. The, the original you know, part just behind me, like the main part of the building, um, was built as a private home. It was a mansion built by someone who was, at one point, the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, Colonel Gaston. And somebody reading the, the rather slim volume, which is the history of the town of Barry, discovered that Colonel Gaston also had a motto, which was, you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> which I liked a lot. And my, my very first thought was, I wonder how well he got along with his neighbors. <laughs> so I usually tell that story because I believe that each of us either consciously or unconsciously, tends to have a motto about our lives. It's something that encapsulates what we believe about ourselves, what we think we're capable of, what we think our lives are about, what gives it meaning. And very often that motto is pretty limited. It's awfully conditioned. And so we feel imprisoned by it rather than freed by it. To, to explore, to open, to venture forth. One of my Tibetan teachers, named Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, was very pointed in a way about this, this issue. He used to say things like, to paraphrase him, why is your sense of aspiration so small? Why is it so meager, so limited? Why not aspire to be a fully liberated being for the sake of all beings? Why not? I think on a certain level, much of our our practice is a confrontation with why not? Now, what's holding us back? What's what's having us feel so, so incapable, so small, so unworthy in some way? We see that. We learn to see through it we learn to continually expand our aspiration, our dedication, our, almost like our imagination, our conviction, our faith, for that matter, about what our life can be about. And that's very, very important. Another side to our journey is, it can be described as patience or surrender, being with what is, allowing things to unfold. It's that whole side of things. It's the understanding that whatever our aspiration, whatever our dedication, the way dreams come true is one step at a time. And that no matter how impatient we get, it doesn't make things go faster. We have to be with and genuinely be with what is happening in front of us that that is the transformation of our lives. Everything else is like a story that we tell about ourselves. And so 
we need to use this moment and not be in such a hurry, as though that was going to make things happen any faster than they actually happen. There's a a wonderful image that the Buddha used um, that I I mentioned in one of the groups where he said, and like many of these teaching examples, it's very, very simple. They actually say that whenever the Buddha spoke, he spoke so simply that even a seven-year-old could understand him. And perhaps somewhat as a consequence of that, they say he had many fully enlightened seven-year-old disciples. So sometimes I think that what we need is to rediscover that seven-year-old inside of us that's so eager to learn and so curious and so open-minded in some way. So this is the simple example from the Buddha, where he said, the mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness or loving-kindness moment by moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. Very simple. The mind will get filled with qualities like Mindfulness and loving-kindness, moment by moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. As soon as I heard it, I loved it, because right away I could imagine myself doing one of two things. One was standing by the bucket and kind of looking in and thinking, oh, it's going to be great when it's full, isn't it? And I would just imagine myself fully enlightened, kind of floating down the streets of New York, you know, wearing a white sari with a beatific smile on my face and not bothering to add the next drop, which means using that very moment, whatever the experience was, as a further development of mindfulness or loving kindness, not having the patience or the humility to add the next drop. And I could certainly see myself easily standing by the bucket and looking inside and going, ooh, it's kind of empty in there, isn't it? That's never going to get filled. And once again, not doing what, in fact, I needed to do, which was adding the very next drop. That's how the bucket gets filled. And since the time I first heard the image and, and had those two, two elaborations come up in my mind, I thought of another one, which is standing by the bucket and completely ignoring it in order to peer over into someone else's bucket and say, well, how are they doing over there, you know? And there are probably many, many variations on this theme. But we have the moment. And in fact, the actualization of our dreams, of our aspirations, has got to happen in this moment and in this moment and in this moment. So we need that whole side, too. And that reflects in many ways the, the mystery of the unfolding of spiritual life or meditation practice. It's not so linear. It's not something that we can commodify in a way and say, well, you know, I deserve to have 18 minutes of bliss today because, you know, I've put in my time It's a mystery. That bucket doesn't get filled with experience. It gets filled with mindfulness and loving kindness, which means how we're relating to the experience in front of us. 
I sometimes use the image of um, this time when I was in California. I was in San Francisco, and a friend brought me to Grace Cathedral to walk the labyrinth, which was the first time I'd ever done that. The labyrinth, as as you probably know, is a a pattern that is um, preset, sort of like a maze-like configuration, and you start at the very edge in an indoor labyrinth. It, it could be something like a rug with this pattern on it. Outdoor labyrinth <coughs> could be the same pattern etched in granite or something like that. And you start on the very edge, and you just follow it along as it's laid out with the goal of coming to the very, very center. So I started inside. It was a pattern on a rug. And I was walking along. I started on the edge, and I walked in, and I was going through the loops and turns. And I was almost, almost at the very center when, oddly, the path took a turn out again. And I went out and found myself right back on the very edge. And I thought, I must have made a mistake. And then I thought, this is not so hard to do. This is like one foot in front of the other. So I kept on going, and strangely enough, having almost been in the center and being taken way out to the extreme edge, I kept on going and found that I landed in the very center. So I then went outside to walk the outdoor labyrinth, which is the identical pattern engraved in the, in the uh, ground there. So I started on the edge, and I had exactly the same experience, which is that I was almost in the very center, and then the path took me way out to the edge again, and I had the same thought. I thought, I must have made a mistake. And then I thought, wait a minute, didn't you just have this experience like three <laughs> minutes ago? Didn't you notice that sometimes you're almost in the very center and then you're taken way out to the edge again, only to find that if you keep going, if you persevere, you'll end up in the very center? There's so much of our practice which has that flavor of not knowing. But what we do know is that we need to take the next step. We can't commodify, we can't evaluate, we can't figure it out but we need to persevere. That's the surrender part. Stop trying to manage it all and being in control, being on top of it, manipulating our experience, being willing to be completely present, as present as we possibly can be, and admit that we don't know. So these two aspects of of tremendous and growing aspiration as well as the ability to be patient, to let things unfold as they need to unfold, to have that quality of surrender, they form almost like um, two foundations for our practice. And they come together in what we call right effort or diligence to not withhold and also not demand to be able to open, to, to have the courage to, to have a bigger aspiration, not to live in what I think is one of our kind of society's ills, which is really a blunted sense of aspiration, where we don't have much feeling that we can make a difference, we can change our lives, we can change the world. 
You know, not to be swayed by that, but to continue to open and expand in that way. And at the same time, to be willing to add this very next drop and the next one and the next one. That becomes diligence, where we don't give up and we have a very strong sense of commitment. And what that means in our lives for most of us is having that commitment toward a a daily meditation practice. Because for all of us, it's a lot easier to think about and talk about or write books about or lecture about than it is to do it. Something different happens when we do it. I can remember when I went to India um, as an 18-year-old college student uh, who'd taken you know, one course in Buddhism, I had sort of the, you know, the deeper motivation that, that sent me halfway across the world to try to learn how to um, be happy, in effect. But I also had this kind of feeling like, oh, I know what that's all about. You know, I took a course in it. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, you know, I know all about what the Buddha said about, you know, six ways of knowing the world and pleasure, pain, and neutrality and attachment and aversion and delusion. You know, I wrote a paper on that. You know, or I did a midterm exam on that. I know about what he said about pain and all of that. You know, but when I finally sat down in my first meditation retreat and it was my knee pain, I realized I didn't know anything. And that's not a bad feeling to have. You know, we can assume so much based on our intellectual prowess, such a sense of mastery, but really bringing a value system to life, really living it, is very different than kind of admiring it from afar and thinking, oh, isn't that cool, you know? That's an incredible moment in time in our lives when we move off of the sidelines right into the center of possibility. And it's not about someone else's possibility anymore. It's about ourselves and the possibility of really being free or being liberated, not having to be burdened by the habitual patterns of our mind. I think about my last, uh, at that time, my last semester in college in Buffalo, New York, And I realized I could easily have stayed there and written more papers about Buddhism and read more books. I think about that insistence within me that it become real, that it not be deferred or removed, that, that sense of possibility, where I had to see, okay, what might happen for me? You know, what happens when... We take something that's abstract and we make it real. That's the process that we are going through every time we sit down to meditate, which is why one of my teachers said, the most important moment in your meditation is the moment you sit down to do it. Because in that moment, we are doing just that. We're taking something that could be remote, kind of flat, belonging to somebody else, and we're making it ours. We're saying something about what we believe might be possible for us. We're saying something about change. We're saying something about 
the willingness to breathe life into a concept or an idea. We're saying something about having faith. The moment we sit down to do it is the most important moment of our whole practice. What ensues after that can be anything. You know, I know you spent some time, most of you probably spent some time today talking. And it's very possible that the last sitting you just did was way different than the sitting you did before lunch, you know? Concentration, tranquility, calm, as factors of mind, they change an awful lot. They go up and they go down. And they're very conditioned by the circumstance we find ourselves in. It only makes sense, really. You know, we know it's much easier to concentrate in a quiet place than in a noisy place. What do you do if you live in New York City? You know, you have to move into your closet. You have to wear those, like, headphones that people wear in airport tarmacs. You know, you have to try to control your environment perfectly. And there's so much fear and resentment, like, oh, no, you made a noise. You ruined my meditation. (laughs) But surely we don't want our practice to be something we need to protect in that way. We want it to be something that protects us, something bigger that makes our lives bigger and more open and more free. So while we, we appreciate and work with and, and nurture the power of concentration and all those beautiful states of stillness and quietness and so on, we know it's not always going to be there. And we can still be quite mindful, very aware, compassionate, loving of whatever is happening which is why somebody asked me, you know, when I keep saying things like, it doesn't matter so much what is happening. What really matters is how we're relating to what's happening. You know, it doesn't matter if it's pleasant or painful or neutral. It doesn't matter if it's one of the hindrances or it's this beautiful state of bliss. What matters is whether we can be mindful of it or the equivalent in metta practice. It doesn't matter what you feel. It matters you know, the intention of the mind. So somebody asked me uh, the other day if I really meant that or if I was just trying to give solace to those of you who, who really couldn't do the real thing. And so let me say with total conviction, I really mean it. It's true. And so for all that we evaluate and we, we judge and we condemn and we, and we um, have greed for certain kinds of experiences or expectations. The truth is, what matters is how we're relating to what is going on. So when we practice, it will always be different. There are times that are just tumultuous. We're flooded with thoughts, and there's so many things going on. And there are times when our practice is really serene. But the most important moment of your practice is the moment you sit down to do it. What will ensue will always be different. But what matters is how we are with all of that. And it's all significant. It's all impactful, no matter what it feels like. It takes quite a lot to really 
do a daily practice. Sometimes the most important thing is that we learn to surrender more. You know, that we have a greater sense of ease and balance and willingness to be with whatever is, that we not judge it so much. And, and that can be very important. Now, when I was living in India, I wasn't always on retreat. Sometimes I was just living there. And it was very hard to have a daily practice, even there. If things felt good, you know, I sat down, it was serene, I felt um, happy, I felt peaceful, and my concentration was strong, I would think, oh, good, I'm going to live the entire rest of my life in India. And I would subsequently plan it out. But if things were difficult, you know, if I was restless or bored or sleepy or my back hurt or my knees hurt or my head hurt or something like that, I'd give up. I'd think, oh, this doesn't work. Or I can't do this. Or this only works on retreat. You know, I'll wait until I can get to the next retreat and then I'll, I'll start to practice again. But I would just get up. I would feel defeated by the difficulty. And so... At one point, I went to one of my teachers, this man named Manindra, and I told him, I described this whole pattern, and he said to me, for you, I have one piece of advice, and that is, put your body there. He said, just put your body there every day. And some days, it's going to feel one way. Other days, it's going to feel another way. Just do it. You know, don't worry so much about kind of tabulating the results. We need that that quality of surrender. And we also need a lot of commitment in the form of aspiration or intention. One of my teachers was, one of our teachers was this woman named Deepama, who was an incredible model to me in many ways. And in some ways, the most powerful thing she modeled was that force of intention because the circumstances of her life were quite difficult. She had been, like many uh, women in India of that time, she'd been placed into an arranged marriage when she was 12 years old. And in her case, she and her husband felt quite deeply in love. Um, and then they didn't have children for many, many years, like 18 years, and that was, was very difficult. Um, she finally did have three children, and then two of them died, and then her husband died uh, in very abrupt circumstances. He just came home one day feeling ill, and he died by that night. So there was Deepama. Deepama means Deepa's mother. She had one daughter left living named Deepa. And she was completely grief-stricken, just overcome by grief, and she took to bed. She couldn't get out of bed. And this being Burma, uh, at the time her husband had been a, uh, they were Indian nationals, but he'd been in the civil service in Burma, so she was living in Burma. Being Burma, when the doctor came, he said to her, you're actually going to die of a broken heart unless you do something about your mind. You better learn how to meditate. And so she did. They say that when she got out of bed to go to, the monastery, the temple, 
she was so weak that she actually had to crawl up the temple stairs in order to get into the meditation room. But she practiced. They also say that um, in, in kind of the um, initial period of her practice, not that very first time because some odd circumstance happens and she had to leave, but she went back, she kept falling asleep. That's all that happened. She'd sit and she'd go to sleep. And uh, Manindra was also her teacher there in Burma, and she told him, well, all I'm doing is falling asleep. And she said, I don't understand, you know, like when she was in bed for that whole time, she wasn't sleeping. She couldn't sleep. So she said, you know, all that time in bed I couldn't sleep, and now all I'm doing is sleeping when I'm meditating. And he just said, no, that's good, you know. It's like, you just keep going, you know, just be mindful of it, as we say. Um, And in a very short period of time, she went through tremendous transformation in her life and attained a state of of great peace and used the suffering she had been through as a vehicle for the most extraordinary kind of love and compassion. She was in many ways one of the most loving people I'd ever met, and it was quite universal. It was so clear that she knew that your life could change on a dime and that no one was exempt and that we all needed that energy of of love and care without exception. So in all the years that I knew her, I never saw anybody, and I saw all kinds of people, you know, all ages, all, all sort of descriptions, come to meet her. And I never saw anybody that she seemed to, like, not care about, you know, that that was sort of outside some line that she had drawn between, you know, us and them. There was no them. It was really kind of amazing. And it seemed to come from that incredible suffering and knowing what was really important and how connected we all are, and that no one should really have the feeling of being alone in any circumstances. And so she was was a tremendous model. She was also very strong. You know, she was very, very tiny. Those of you who, uh, I know some of you have seen the book that somebody here um, has created about her life, and there's a picture of Joseph and she walking, and, (laughs) and Joseph is, I don't know, like, five times bigger than she is or something. (laughs) You know, it was very funny. Um, But she had boundless energy and commitment. It's like she wanted to see you do your best, you know, so that was was very intense. And, um, you know, we often tell the story about uh, Joseph and I had gone to see her in Calcutta sometime when she was was quite old and... um, She said something uh, to both of us, actually, like, um, are you planning on sitting for, like, I was like two or three days. And what she meant was sitting down and getting up two or three days later, because that was the kind of thing she could do. You know, and we laughed, you know, we just laughed and laughed. And she she looked at us and said, don't be lazy. (laughs) Now, I don't think she thought for a minute we could ever do it. I mean, never. But it was just some sense of like, 
you know, why set such itty-bitty little goals, you know? Like, get with it, do it, you know? Think bigger, you know? Come on. So she was very strong in that way. And we see, I think, that, you know, we all share in that wish to be happy. We all share in that vulnerability to change and to pain. And we can use that as the platform for our own much greater dedication to living with integrity and practicing with a a very wholehearted effort and caring for one another, all of that. Sometimes it's so hard to practice in our lives to make the time. And sometimes something happens so that uh, mirror is held before us so we really see how privileged we are and that we need to make the time and not be lazy, so to speak. I can remember when Joseph and I first went to the Soviet Union many years ago to teach. And there were no books, basically. There were certainly no Dharma books. And if somebody got a book, you know, someone else would, like, copy it over. And they would share a book. You know, 30 or 40 people would would read a book, one after another. It was such a precious, valuable item. And I think about all my books at home, you know, and my perennial vow to read all the books on my shelf, which I've still not accomplished, you know, and how careless I am about them in a way. It's like, oh, yeah, another darn book. Look at that. You know, we really lead lives of great privilege, even as we face challenges and, you know, and loss and suffering and all of that. And we need to appreciate the opportunities that we have and, and make use of it because if we don't do it, it's going to remain, you know, liberation, freedom from suffering, happiness, love, compassion is just going to remain like a nice idea. One of the things I've been doing um, while here teaching is corresponding with a soldier in Iraq who wrote to um, Tricycle Buddhist magazine and said that he had committed to Buddhism about, he's in the Army Reserves, he's very young, he's 23 years old, he committed to Buddhism about six months before he was sent to Iraq, and he really needed a meditation teacher because he needed to know how to practice in the middle of a war. So they sent the request to me, and I thought, well, hey, you know, I've never done anything like that, so I'll write to him. So I've been writing to him, you know, and he, he sent me a picture the other day of a meditation room that he created. He found some empty old room in uh, actually, it's one of Saddam Hussein's old prisons, so you can imagine how horrible it is and looks and feels. But he created a meditation room there, and he made a zafu. You know, you could see it, like, I don't know what he put in it, but he put this black plastic around whatever. And you could see, like, the plastic and the tie and the platform. So he, he took a picture of his meditation room and sent it to me. And he said, I'm sitting 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. And I thought, well, you know, it's better than a lot of people do in suburbia, really. <laughs> but why is that, you know? We take so much for granted, and, and we postpone so much. We think, oh, well, tomorrow. You know, I'll get around to it tomorrow. 
But when we're really on an edge and we're really understanding loss and change and suffering and love and compassion, we don't postpone anything. We really put our hearts there. And so this is very, very important in every way for us to have the support of our own practice, to have a time of these values being made real, to be able to reach beyond the circumstances we find ourselves in and actually care deeply for others. All of that comes about from the fact that we sit down to do it. And sitting, actually, is, I mean, metaphorically. Maybe at some point you'll choose walking meditation or something like that. But to really make these values real. And then there is, of course, the whole rest of the day when what we discover is that if we take the time and we really are practicing mindfulness, we're putting more and more of those drops in the bucket, or practicing loving kindness, it will filter out throughout the day. We find ourselves aware. And then we have the possibility of a conscious life. We have the possibility of really making some choices. I have two favorite examples these days. One is, you know, getting really, really angry and not quite recognizing it because we're not in touch with what we're feeling. And because we're not in touch with what we're feeling, we're completely lost, enveloped in that state and going off and writing that email and sending it. And then like two hours later you think, ooh, I guess I was really angry. And then those of you who are on AOL know that if the recipient of your email is also on AOL, they have this magical feature called unsend, where if the person hasn't read the email yet, you can press this button and it will go somewhere into the void and they will never know that you wrote it. You know, so of course you realize, oh no, I was really angry three hours ago, you know, and you run to your computer and desperately, you know, get online and see, oh, maybe they haven't read it yet, and of course they've always read it. (laughs) So what happens the more we practice is that we know what we're feeling as we're feeling it, not three hours later and not the next day and not after we've sent the email, but at the time. And then we have a choice. My other favorite example these days is when, you know, you're talking to somebody and this really, really malicious piece of gossip about somebody else comes to mind and you just feel that urge to say it. But if you're aware, and that doesn't mean being judgmental and condemning yourself and kind of getting pious about it, you know, but if you're just aware, both of the feeling and in a more global way, there's a choice, you know, and what comes up in your mind is what's really going to happen if I say this, if I disclose this? Who is it going to help? Who is it going to harm? You know, what are the consequences of, of going down that road? And you may just let go, let it go. So that's the opening that happens as we as we actually practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. We practice formally for 
whatever period of time it is each day, hopefully. And we find it does kind of come into our lives. It does give us this ability to more be the person we actually would like to be. And then we make a commitment really to, to have a, a life of integrity, to be aware of our choices, to be as compassionate as we can be, to have a life that is, is one of greater clarity, one of greater simplicity. I have a friend who uh, provided the opportunity for this amazing story about lying um, that happened to me once. Many years ago, she went to India and she didn't want her mother to know that she was going without her husband because she knew her mother would worry tremendously. And so she lied to her mother. She said, well, my husband and I are going to India and if there's some kind of emergency or something, here's the number that you should call. And it was the number of the house that I was staying at. So she was gone like 29 days, you know, and she was about to leave the next day uh, from India to come back home when her mother called. And she said to the person who answered the phone, have you heard from my daughter or her husband? And the person who answered the phone, forgetting that he was supposed to lie, said, oh, he was just here for dinner. And then he thought, whoops. (laughs) So he started to backtrack, and he said, well, you know, he went to India with her, but he had this business uh, to tend to here, so he came back a little bit early, but she's leaving tomorrow, don't worry about it. So immediately the woman knew that she was being lied to, and she panicked. You know, she's dead, I know she's dead, why don't you tell me she's dead, you know, why don't you tell me the truth? And, and, and he kept saying, no, everything's fine, don't worry about it, it's just, you know, he had to come home a little early, and... Um, so then he hung up, and then the phone rang, and it was a friend of ours saying, oh, you know who just called me? Is so-and-so's mother. So we realized that she was calling every number she ever had for her daughter's friends, and what we needed to do was call everybody before they heard from the mother <laughs> so that they could tell her the appropriate lie. So we started calling all these different people, to tell them which lie to tell to this poor woman. And then this complete stranger called us, who was like this woman's neighbor or something like that. And she said, well, she knows you won't tell her the truth, but maybe you'll tell me the truth, you know, so I can break it to her. And and so then we had to call everybody again and say, well, you're probably going (laughs) to call from this woman you've never heard of. And it's just like, you know, what was really kind of weird and appropriate in the middle of all that was that, um, we started getting all these obscene phone calls out of the blue. And it was so weird because, you know, in that kind of circumstance, maybe ordinarily you'd stop answering your phone for a while, but we felt we had to answer the phone because it might be somebody we had to tell lie to, you know, and doing all this. And so this whole weird evening unfolded. And, and finally, somebody just couldn't stand it anymore. So they called the woman and they said, you know what, I'm going to tell you the truth. He didn't go to India. She went alone. She's fine. She's coming back tomorrow. But at that point, 
she had been lied to so many times that she didn't believe it. You know, it's like she couldn't absorb it as the truth. And what was even stranger was that when I looked at my own mind, I didn't know what was true anymore. It was like such a dizzying array of, of lies and deceit and trying to bolster that and, and confusion that I actually didn't know anymore what was true. And so when we become conscious of our choices and our actions and our commitments and our dedications, we also become conscious of the consequences of the actions that we take and the ways that we speak. And, and we can, if we want, really choose to take care, to be as careful as we can for the joy of it, you know, for the love of it, for the ease of it to not have to kind of spend a day thinking, who did I lie to and did I lie well and, you know, should I do it again? And, and to, to remove ourselves from that kind of complexity and weirdness. You know, it's a very beautiful thing. I often think about that, how we don't think of courage so much necessarily or, or daring or, or bravery in terms of morality. But actually it is. Because it's not that easy to live in a way that is straightforward, that's caring, that's compassionate. It often means making some very hard choices and not knowing what to do and really struggling. But it's very real and it's alive and it's awakened rather than just being asleep and taking the easy way. So that becomes a part of making our practice real is looking at how we live and how we speak and what we care about. And we do that, it becomes a, a kind of generosity. It's like a generosity of action that becomes both the basis for and the expression of a generosity of the heart, which is metta, which is loving kindness. Because really, in the end, we don't practice for ourselves alone. Even if you know, our suffering is very great at a certain time and we're more or less consumed by it, the truth is that we are never really just practicing for ourselves alone. Because who we become is of tremendous influence in this world. One of my favorite stories from um, the history of Buddhism is a story of the Emperor Ashoka, who was um, an emperor in northern India a few hundred years, about 250 years after the time of the Buddha. And it said that in his early career as an emperor, Ashoka was extremely greedy and bloodthirsty, and he would many times wage war and order wars, fought so that he could acquire new territory and um, he was a very kind of cruel, despotic ruler. And it's also said he was a very unhappy man. And as the, the story goes, one day he ordered a battle that turned out to be particularly terrible with a, a tremendous amount of loss and bloodshed. And the morning after the battle, he was walking along the battlefield and a Buddhist monk walked by. And Ashoka was struck with the thought, you know, I who have everything, 
that a human being could want, like everything, as an emperor. I'm so miserable. And here's this monk who has nothing. Like all he owns are the robes that he's wearing and the begging bowl that he's carrying. He looks so happy. You know, I'm going to follow after him and find out what that's about. And obviously, you know, it's an unusual kind of happiness. It's not one isn't too happy walking along a battlefield, no matter who you are. But some kind of peace, some kind of radiance, something that wasn't broken by the terrible circumstance he found himself walking through. So Ashoka, they say, followed after this monk and said, what do you have inside? You know, what is, what is the nature of, of that kind of peace or happiness? And so the monk began to teach him something of what the Buddha taught him, and that was um, a tremendous turning point in the life of Ashoka. He became a, a just and compassionate ruler. Instead of waging war, he would build hospitals, and he took care of his people. He fed his people, and he uh, planted trees and so on. And he's very famous for erecting these pillars throughout the pilgrimage routes of of northern India so that if you went from holy site to holy site, um, you would see them marked by these pillars with these different edicts and sayings on them. And one of the ones I like the most says something like, the first two years of my meditation practice were really hard, but then things got a lot better, so persevere. <laughs> you know, Emperor Ashoka. <laughs> um, and it was Ashoka's son and daughter who brought the teachings of the Buddha from India to what is now Sri Lanka, um, from where they spread, you know, they spread throughout uh, Southeast Asia, Burma, Thailand, Vietnam, up through Northern Asia, um, you know, Korea, China, Tibet, and ultimately around the world. So think about that monk walking across the battlefield who without one word in some way changed the course of history by the depth of his being, who he was. You know, there's a definite consequence, a relationship between our sitting here today in Barry, Massachusetts, you know, all those thousands of years later, and Ashoka's son and daughter bringing the teachings of the Buddha out of India. I'm tremendously inspired by that story because I really believe we each can be that monk, that the very nature of our being can be impactful. It can make a difference. What we do certainly can make a difference, and who we are can make a difference. And that is the, the opportunity that we are availing ourselves of, that we're believing in, and that we're making real when we commit ourselves to a life of practice. So let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.